Uh, I've done a couple of times the Pentecostal two-step, and I've done a little bit of the charismatic jig, uh, but not too much. Uh, the reason for that is because the way I was reared, all dancing was sin, and I never got to go into the world because I've been a preacher all my life, so I didn't learn to dance out there either. So my feet are definitely uh, not too well connected to that kind of idea. Um, someone has made the statement, I guess, Carl made the statement about the madness, and someone's made the statement like they made about the Apostle Paul, that much learning has made you mad, Dr. Gar. I told him, no, it's not that, it's this crowd of guys I hang around with. <laughs> We're sometimes uh, a little bit on the strange side. We have this little saying, Roses are red, violets are blue. I'm schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> Hallelujah. But it's good to be among a bunch of madmen because I believe that God is calling us to run like madmen to the four corners of the earth proclaiming the kingdom of the living God through the power of his son Jesus in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what we're all about. And by God's grace, we expect to uh, accomplish what he has uh, commissioned us to do, what he's assigned us to do. So we're excited about that. Well, the question is, in this conference, and a lot of things have been asked thus far, and the question's been asked, how in the world did we get here from Acts chapter 2? Where did the church go wrong? Well, if you've done much flying, you know, if you start out on a course and you're headed in a direction and you get one degree off, you can end up a long ways from where you intended to go. And so that's because the church has been a little bit off course. Unfortunately, many in the church, the Lord has been saying to them through the years, you're going down the wrong road. And their response is, yes, Lord, but we're making such good time. <laughs> and unfortunately, we've had a lot of distortions over the centuries, and we have been robbed. And I like to say to those who are coming into beginning understanding of the Hebraic roots of our faith, and we have this sense that we have been robbed. Uh, it's not our fault that we don't have all this knowledge that we should have had. It's the circumstances over centuries of time that have put us to where we are. So don't feel so bad about that. We've been victimized by many who have engaged in what I call exegetical gymnastics, even in exegetical distortion or contortionist acts. Uh, one preacher was so uh, adept at twisting the scriptures around to fit his own ideas that a blacksmith came and heard him preach one time and he came up after the sermon he says, you know, pastor said I have a sign that in my blacksmith shop that I would like to give to you that you could hang in the pulpit when you're preaching. He said, oh, well, that would be nice. What does the sign say? It says all manner of twisting and turning done here. We've been victimized by a lot of stuff in history, and I'm going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Uh, 
But before I do, let me mention a couple of things to you, and that is that we have a number of different books. I don't have all of my books here. Uh, one we've already totally sold out of is the Book of Blessings, and if you'd like to get one of those, then leave an order and we'll send it to you without charging any shipping charges because we didn't bring enough with us. A uh, new edition of my book, God's Lamp, Man's Light, The Mysteries of the Menorah. A lot of information in that about the menorah and the light tradition and the fire tradition and the tree of life tradition from our Jewish heritage that helps us understand more about what the scripture means when it says that you are the light of the world. And then also we have a few issues and copies of Restore Magazine still left and we would encourage you to get some of those and read them. If you'd like to subscribe to Restore Magazine, find one of these little green cards and today and tomorrow we will give you a $5 discount on a subscription. Instead of $25, you'll pay $20 and we'll send you Restore Magazine for a year. It's a great resource. All these crazy guys write for this book magazine, so I guess we could change the name to the Crazy Magazine or something. Uh, we could rename it, but um, we would encourage you to do that. How many of you get Restore Magazine now in your home? Quite a few of you. That's wonderful. Well, it's one of the greatest resources that I believe are available even in the Christian church at large, but certainly within the community of those whom God is calling to return to the biblical foundations of our faith, which just happened to be Hebraic. And so I would encourage you to do that as well. Well, I'm going to go here for an hour and uh, uh, deliver to you what I believe the Lord would have me to share with you. And I will do my best not to get overly uh, enthusiastic and uh, overly ge into gesticulations and all of that sort of thing. I'll try to keep myself under control, but believe me, when I start talking about these Jewish root subjects, I get excited. That's when I really let the Jewish ancestry that I have kind of come out. Most of the time, my German ancestry allows me to keep this suppressed, and my British ancestry lets me keep the stiff, stiff upper lip, but occasionally the Jewish stuff that's in there kind of comes out, and I can't help myself. But I'll do the best I can. I don't want to be like that pastor that went on for so long in his sermon when he got carried away that one of his deacons got up in the middle of the message and began to walk out. He said, wait a minute, where are you going? He said, I'm going to get a haircut. He said, why didn't you get one before you came to church? He said, I didn't need one then. This same pastor was asked to perform a wedding, and the family told him, he said, we're going to let you perform this wedding. We don't want you to get wrapped up in, 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 you know, in your preaching or whatever else during the wedding, so we're going to give you an honorarium of $1,000, and for every unnecessary word you say, we're going to take away $50 from the honorarium. So he got the bride and groom in front of him. He looked at the bride, and he said, take him. She said, yes. Looked at the groom, said, take her. She, he said, yes. He said, took So we won't keep it quite that short, but we'll try to keep within the time constraints. Well, I want to uh, talk to you this afternoon about a subject that I entitle, and it's a title of another one of my books that will be coming out soon. This sermon and message is entitled, Christian Fruit, Jewish Root. Christian Fruit, Jewish Root. I'd like to use as a text scripture two passages from the Word of God, from, first from Isaiah chapter 51 verse 1, and then from Romans chapter 11 verse 17. 
I will be reading from the King James Version of the Scriptures, by the way, the version that came to us at Mount Sinai, later to be translated into Hebrew and Greek. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1, the Scripture says, through the words of the prophet, speaking in the name of the Lord, he says, Hearken or listen unto me, you that follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you were digged. Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. And then again from Romans chapter 11. And verse 17, Romans chapter 11 and verse 17. And if some of the branches be broken off, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches, but if you boast, you bear not the root, but the root thee. Father, we ask for the anointing of your Holy Spirit as we come before this august body of believers who are hungry for you and for your word. We ask that you would anoint our hearts together as we interact collectively around your word so that the word that is spoken and the word that is heard will be your word and that it will penetrate down deep into the heart of every believer And from that word that we speak collectively, you will speak an individual word into every life and help us all to walk in your word and to be what you have called us to be. In Christ's name, amen. The Christian church today has a problem of self-identification. It has an identity crisis. We really don't know who we are. There are all kinds of definitions of what the church should be, how the church should function. We have the user-friendly church. We have all kinds of different ideas of how the church should operate. The reality is that in order to understand who we are, we have to go back to see where we've been and who God designed for us to be in the beginning. As Isaiah said through the word of the Lord to Israel, you need to go back to Father Abraham. If you don't know who you are and you don't know what you're called to do, then go back to Father Abraham. Go back to the rock from whence you were hewn. And then uh, Paul tells us as Gentiles that we were taken out of a wild olive tree and we were grafted into the olive tree of Israel. And now we are the people of God. I would suggest that the church needs to go back to the first century to see what the church of Jesus Christ was all about in that time frame and then begin to understand what God has called us to be today. In the first century church, there was no question as to the church's identity. For the first decade, they were all Jews and their faith was Jewish. As a matter of fact, the earliest Christian faith, if we were to describe it as 
the Jesus movement rather than calling it Christianity as such because Christianity emerged later on. The earliest manifestation of the Christian faith was that of the Jesus movement. And indeed, the Jesus movement was recognized by the community in which it emerged as nothing more than another of the sects of Judaism. So in effect, it was a Jesus Judaism. It was one of many Judaisms. You see, that's another mistake that Christians make. They think that there was a monolithic Judaism in the first century. There was no monolithic Judaism. There were many Judaisms. And you'll remember that if you stop to think a minute. There was Sadducean Judaism, Pharisaic Judaism, the Essene community, Herodian Judaism, the Qumran community, and on and on and on. James Charlesworth has told us that there were perhaps as many as 150 identifiable sects within the Jewish community and within the Judaisms of that day. So earliest Christianity was a Judaism. Out of all those 150 different sects of Judaism, out of all those many Judaisms that existed in the first century, only two survived. One of them was Pharisaic Judaism, the Pharisees, which by the end of the first century, the beginning of the second century, became Rabbinic Judaism, the forerunner of what we know today as modern Judaism. The second Judaism that survived was the Jesus Judaism movement that became Christianity, evolved into Christendom, and is the foundation of all of those who name the name of Jesus in the world today. So, in the beginning, there was no question about the identity of the church. There was no identity crisis. Neither Jesus, nor Paul, nor any of the other apostles was making any effort to separate himself or their community from Israel, from the larger Jewish community. All that they were attempting to do was to make their understanding that in Jesus they had found he who had fulfilled all of Israel's expectations regarding the coming of the Messiah and they were trying to make that understanding normative for the entirety of the Jewish community. That was what the church was all about. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. I hate to disappoint you. But he didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus didn't come to entomb a failed and lifeless religion in an adequate sarcophagus so that it would not appear thereafter on the human scene. Jesus didn't come to do away or destroy Judaism. Jesus was, as Dr. Brad told us this morning, he was a Jew and as far as we know, he never changed his religion. And so it is that Jesus didn't come to try to start a new religion. We have thought that through the history of the church. We have been involved in what is called supersessionism or replacement theology or displacement theology. And each of these ideas postulates the fact that Jesus came to destroy the religion of the Old Testament and to bring on the scene a new religion of the New Testament but I want to tell you something, in case you haven't figured it out. The God of the Bible is not schizophrenic. He didn't have one personality of anger, wrath, judgment, 
law, bondage in the Old Testament and suddenly he had a transformation or a new personality emerged, one of grace and love and joy and peace and blessing in the New Testament. He was the same God. Everybody repeat after me. Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday and today and forever. That means that Jesus that we serve today was the same when he was existing before all eternity and when he was manifest in the Christophanies and the Theophanies in the Old Testament. And he was the same when he was living on planet earth as a human being in the incarnation and he is the same today seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified Judean body. He has not changed. And I hate to disappoint the anti-Semites within the Christian church but there's only one way you can get to God and that's through a Jew. And his name is Jesus. So you might as well get used to it. He didn't die a Jew and resurrect a Roman Catholic. And he's still seated in heaven on the right hand of the Father in a glorified Judean body. And because he was still a Jew of the tribe of Judah, God had to change the priesthood from the order of Levi and revert to the order of Melchizedek so Jesus could be the high priest. So he's still seated at the right hand of the Father in a glorified Judean body. And one day he's coming again. And when he comes again, he'll still be a Jew. And he's coming back not to New York City or to Rome or to Athens. He's coming back to Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the place where he has put his name. Well, that was the case for the first three centuries of the Christian church following the demise of the apostles. There was a great deal of ambivalence in the church about its identity. The church had a problem. If it purported itself to be a new religion, then it would be considered to be an illegitimate religion by the Roman government and would be stamped out. But if it could identify itself as being an ancient religion, then the Roman government would allow it to exist as a legitimate religion. So it tried to maintain some connection with Jews and Judaism and the Hebrew Scriptures, but at the same time began to drift off with Gentile ideas, especially the philosophy of Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. As a matter of fact, as the church began to go into the Gentile world to fulfill the commission that it had from God to take the light of Israel to the nations, unfortunately the door that swung open to give the gospel to the nations also swung both ways. And the traditions of the nations began to come into the church. And many of those men who were converted, who were Neoplatonic philosophers before they came to faith in Jesus, brought with them their ideas and they attempted to reconcile the philosophy of Plato and Aristotle with the Hebraic teaching of the scriptures. And my friends, it is impossible to do it because Greek philosophy and Hebraic understanding are like oil and water. They do not mix they're birthed from a different worldview and a different mindset, and it is impossible to mix the two, no matter how hard you try. One will gain primacy over the other. 
And that's what's happened with the church over the centuries. The church now is probably more influenced by Greek philosophers than it is by Hebrew prophets and apostles. In its thinking, in its attitude towards itself, in its attitude toward the world, there are so many things that we need to re-examine. So the church began to be ambivalent. Eventually, the ambivalence turned into antipathy. When the church began to isolate itself totally from Jews and from Judaism, the church began to say that there was no connection between the Jews and the church. As far as its definition, its self-definition, the church began to say that it defined itself as being not Jewish. On the other hand, our Jewish friends of history began to define themselves as being not Christian. And so a great chasm began to form in what I call the proto-schism, the first division upon which Christianity as a religion was founded, was upon its separation from Israel, from Judaism, from the Jewish people. And this was the great tragedy of history. By the time of Constantine in the fourth century, we find the emperor of Rome becoming a Christian, at least nominally, and making Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. When he called together the bishops of the church from all of the various areas of the church to discuss the question of deity and some questions of Christology, they were brought together and were demanded to find a solution to this answer or to this question. And as they were analyzing this, there was a growing move in the church and also in the mind of Constantine himself that the church should forever separate itself from the Jewish people. So in the context of that meeting, Constantine issued a letter to the leaders of the church and he said, let us, and I'm quoting verbatim, let us therefore have nothing in common with these pitiful people, the Jews, who are the murderers and parasites of our Lord. Therefore, this irregularity of Passover observance in the church must be corrected. Up until that time, the first part of the fourth century in the Western church, the church had continued to celebrate the Feast of Passover. They celebrated it on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, the month Nisan, or Aviv. And they were faithful in doing that. But because of the rising tide of this incipient anti-Semitism, anti-Judaism, anti-Semitism that began to rise within the church that had become larger and larger by this time, the church was saying we need to separate from this. How can we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus and we have to go to consult with Jewish rabbis to find out which day is the 14th day of the first month of Nisan? And so they came up with a solution. 
They decided that thereafter the church would celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the first Sunday nearest the vernal equinox, provided that Sunday did not fall upon the day of Passover, in which case they had to move it to another week. Now, my friends, when this happened with Constantine's demand and the growing anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism within the church, at this moment in time, the church was wrenched from its Jewish root of connection with the pivotal event of all of human history. The moment when Jesus hung on the cross. Jesus did not hang on the cross and resurrect on Easter Sunday morning. He hung on the cross on the day of Passover and he resurrected on the day of first fruits. And if you want to know when to celebrate and honor the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you might as well put up your Gregorian calendar, put up your Julian calendar, go get you a Jewish calendar, and then you can find out when it's appropriate to observe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, when it's proper. Well, this is what happened with the church. So the church began to say more and more, we're not Jewish. And eventually... In the context of German theologians in the 19th century and on into the 20th century, they began to adopt what they called the criterion of dissimilarity, which says if you're reading in the New Testament scriptures and the Gospels, if there seems to be anything in there that connects the church with the Jews and Judaism, then it must not be authentic. It couldn't have been what Jesus said or what John said or what any of the apostles said, so we have to discard those things. We have to be in complete discontinuity with the Jews and the Jewish people. So Judaism became equated with legalism. Pharisaism became equated with hypocrisy in our English vocabulary. If you look up the word Pharisee in scripture or in the dictionary, it'll say hypocrite. Well, I want to tell you, the Pharisees, there were hypocrites among them. But how many of you know there are a couple of three hypocrites in the church? Have you ever found any of them? I heard a famous black preacher preaching many years ago on the radio, and he said, you know, there's hypocritin' in the church. He said, there's hypocritin' in the amen corner. There's hypocritin' in the choir. There's hypocritin' even in the pulpit, he said. But one day, all the hypocrites are going to be in the, cast into the lake of fire. And I'm going to tell you, there's not going to be any hypocrite in the lake. <laughs> well, hypocrite is not synonymous with Pharisee and vice versa. So in the church, there was an aberrant streak of patricide that sought to destroy its patrimony, its connection with the root from which it came. The church began to separate itself. One theologian has said that it was a psychotic impulse that sought to deny its heritage. And as a result, we have an identity crisis. So we have all kinds of Christianity in the world today. Well, I would say that the reason why we have all of these in the world today is because the church has violated two divine imperatives. One from the lips of Jesus himself 
and the other from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The first imperative or command was given by Jesus in Matthew 5, 17, when he said, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy but to fulfill. For until heaven and earth passes away, not one yod or one crown of the Torah text will ever pass away until all has been fulfilled. And I would suggest that you remember the word fulfilled just simply means filled full. So Jesus said, this is the command, think not. The problem with Christian theologians ever since, we've been doing exactly what Jesus said not to do. We've been thinking. It's what's called systematic theology. Thinking, analyzing. And we've tried to find inventive ways. This gets back to my exegetical gymnastics. All manner of twisting and turning done here to prove that Jesus really meant the opposite of what he said. He really meant that he came to destroy the law, came to destroy Judaism, and to start a brand new religion. Well, he himself said he didn't do it. The second imperative that the church has been guilty of violating is the one that came from the pen of the Apostle Paul, and it's in Romans 11, where he said, Boast not against the natural branches. And boy, has the church ever been boasting and has the church ever been arrogant ever since Jesus said those words. And it is till this day. The boasting continues. The Christian triumphalism continues vis-a-vis -vis the Jews. And I would suggest to you that the whole of the Christian church should stop disobeying the commandment of Jesus and stop disobeying the commandment of Paul, we need to be saying to one another, think not and boast not. And then we'll get ourselves back on track. We'll begin to realize who we are and what we are. I want to suggest to you that every authentic expression of Christian faith is rooted in biblical Judaism. I would say, in effect, that every Christian fruit has a Jewish root. Let's think about it a little bit. Let's start from the beginning. Our Christian understanding of God. Where do you think that we got our understanding of God? If it weren't for the Jews and the Hebrew Scriptures, we Gentiles would still be worshiping rocks and trees and planets, and worse than that, we'd be worshiping emperors, human beings, who would try to make themselves gods. Monotheism comes to us as the cornerstone of Christian faith, but it comes to us because it was revealed to the Jewish people, and it came into the Christian faith because Christianity was birthed out of the matrix of biblical and second temple Judaism. We owe a great debt of gratitude to the Jews. We wouldn't even know what to worship today if it weren't for the Jews. Jesus said to the woman at the well of Samaria, we know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. The second thing that is very important to us as Christians is our Bible. How many of you have a Bible with you today? 
Pretty important, isn't it? How many of you have read this nice Jewish book? You're aware of that? This is a Jewish book. One of the greatest mistakes that the Jews made in all of history is they didn't get a copyright on this book. Look at all the royalties they've missed. The Bible is a Jewish book all the way from Genesis to Maps. If you don't believe it, open your Bible now and look in the back, see what the maps are. They're maps of Israel. It's a Jewish book. The third thing we have that comes to us from the Jewish people, from Judaism, is our understanding of the Messiah. It is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. He was a Jew. Oh, I know one Roman Catholic lady heard this discussion about a message I taught about the Jewishness of Jesus, and she concluded by saying, well, I guess after all the evidence that you've presented, that we have to conclude that Jesus was a Jew, but surely not the Holy Mother. Well, the real reason why he was a Jew is because he had a Jewish mother. That's it. Jesus was Jewish, thoroughly. He was circumcised on the eighth day. The seal of his inclusion in the covenant of Abraham was put in his flesh on the eighth day. He was given a Jewish name, Yeshua. He lived a Jew. Everybody around recognized him as being a Jew. How did they do that? Well, you might say, somebody might say, well, he had a Jewish look. Well, there's no such thing as a Jewish look. The reason he was identifiable as a Jew was because the clothing he was wearing and the way he groomed himself, the way he cut his hair, the way he wore his beard, the way he wore his clothing, his wearing of the tzitzit attached to the extremities of his outer garment called the talit. That's how they identified him as being Jewish. And then when he died, he was recognized as being Jewish because there was a titulus that was put over the cross on which he was crucified that said, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So our Savior is Jewish. Now let's go to another one. We in evangelical tradition are quite proud of our salvation. How many of you are glad you're saved? How many of you know you're saved? Do you know if you didn't know you were saved, you could lose it and not know you lost it? By the way, you know that's the way you can tell the difference between a Presbyterian and a Methodist, don't you? The Presbyterian knows, knows he can't lose it, but he's scared to death he may not have it. And a Methodist is, knows he's got it, but he's scared to death he's going to lose it. Salvation. How many of you know Jesus said it? John 4, salvation is from the Jews. Now, how in the world is salvation from the Jews? First of all, salvation is a person. How many of you have met that person? His name is Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. Salvation, Yeshua, healing. That's what Jesus is. He's God's salvation. 
That's why they named him Yeshua, because he was to be God in the role of a Savior when he was incarnated here on the earth. Secondarily, the idea of salvation is from the Jews. There's no other religion in the world where there's an idea of sin and the need for atonement or salvation, except from Judaism and Christianity that was birthed out of the matrix of Judaism. So when Jesus said, salvation is from the Jews, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Well, let's go to another thing. The Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh. We wouldn't have any idea about a Holy Spirit if it wasn't for the Hebrew Scriptures, for the Jewish people. We might know a thing, a thing about some spirits. I remember the cartoon of Hagar the Horrible years ago. I don't know if it's even still in there, you know. He goes into a house and he says, Spirits, come out! The cupboards open up and all the liquor bottles come popping out and in the floor. That's what we'd think about spirits. If it wasn't for the Hebrew Scriptures. But we know there is a Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit of the living God. Well, I said again that every Christian fruit has a Jewish root. Now let's start thinking about some of these things that we know for sure are Christian that could not possibly have any connection with the Jews. Maybe the gospel. How's that? The gospel. Now there's a real Christian thing has nothing to do with the Jews. Wrong. The book of Galatians tells us that the gospel was preached first to Abraham. Oh my goodness. Why didn't Paul leave that out? Why did he have to say that? He could have left that out. And then in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that the gospel was preached to Israel in the desert. So we thought that the gospel was uniquely Christian. That it came into being in the first century through Jesus and the apostles. And before that time, there was no gospel. That's why John the Revelator in the book of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10 calls it the everlasting gospel. It's the everlasting good news, the good news that was given to man in the Garden of Eden when God said that you will have dominion over all the earth. And it's a good news that will be proclaimed in the end when the Son of Man says to those who are on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom that is prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. The good news... It's Jewish. It's Hebraic. Okay, well, got me on that one. Let's talk about another one. Now, we know for sure that the church is exclusively Christian. Never seen a Jewish synagogue with uh, Emmanuel Church written over the top of it. So, therefore, the church has to be uniquely Christian. 
Most theologians, if they were asked, not only theologians, but pastors, Sunday school teachers, most Christians, if they were asked, when was the church born? Universally, they'll say, on the day of Pentecost. And I say they're absolutely right. They're just in the wrong century. church was born on the day of Pentecost but it was born on the day of Pentecost at Sinai in Acts chapter 2 the church was born again so church is not an exclusively Christian term as a matter of fact Stephen in his apology in Acts chapter 7 says that Jesus the one he was preaching to his fellow Jews in Jerusalem that Jesus was the one who was with the church in the wilderness or in the desert. Now, if there was no church in the desert, in the wilderness, then how could Jesus have been with the church in the wilderness? Well, the reality is that what is considered to be the church or should be considered in the church, here we need to rewrite some ecclesiology for the church, and by the way, that's another book I'm writing called The Church Dynamic, Hebraic Foundations for Christian Community. Anyway, the idea for the church is that it's the congregation of God, the community of God. The word in Greek is the word ekklesia, but it translates in the Septuagint version, the Hebrew word kahal. And the word kahal comes from the root word kol, which means the voice. So the church came into existence when all of Israel and the mixed multitude that were with them were summoned by God's voice to come out of Egypt and come to Sinai to celebrate a festival unto God in the desert. You see, that's the word that God said to Pharaoh through Moses. Let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival unto me in the desert. That's why we know it was at Pentecost because that's the only festival that was taking place at that time frame. And so when they gathered together, that's when they were called the congregation of God, the Kahal. So this whole idea of a congregation, a community, is not unique to Christianity. It was just carried forward in the New Testament church from that community that had all, was already existing. It's important for us to understand that. There wasn't an effort to start the church and do away with the synagogue. The synagogal movement continued in the church. The word synagogue only means meeting. In Greek, it means meeting. So it's the meeting of people. So the idea of the church is not exclusively a Christian idea. It's rooted in Judaism it's rooted in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's rooted in Second Temple Judaism. It's important for us to understand that. It will clarify our own self-identity of the church. We would never think of the church as being a building or of being what we do in the building if we had maintained the accuracy of translation instead of translating it church, which goes back to the Greek kuriakos, which means belonging to the Lord, if we'd just always translated it congregation as it should have been, we'd all have understood it. We wouldn't have all this confusion. We'd be the congregation of God, the community of God. So church is not an exclusively Christian term. Well, I know one 
that's exclusively Christian. It's baptism. Now you can't find any baptism before John the Baptist. You know, one Christian said that that Jesus was a Baptist. Somebody else responded, no, Jesus wasn't a Baptist. He was a Nazarene. John was a Baptist. Now, all of us who have any sense at all, we know that John was the first Baptist. Actually, I think he was pastoring First Baptist Church down next to Qumran. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but John didn't get the idea for baptism when he was down in the Judean desert one day and had a sunstroke and said, you know, what we need to do is put water on these people, cool everything off. John was perfectly in context with his Jewish community. He was in relationship with the Essenes and with the Qumran community. He was certainly in context with all of Judaism, and Judaism had been baptizing for centuries, all the way back to Sinai, because the priests immersed themselves before they went into the presence of God. And finally, after time passed, the Jewish people said, well, if it's good for the priest to immerse themselves before they go in before the Lord, then it's probably a good idea for all of us to do it. So they built ceremonial immersion pools. They were called mikvot. And each of these mikvot were pools of water. Generally speaking, they had seven steps on one side that one went down into. One then immersed himself or herself in the water totally. And then one came out the other side up seven steps. This is where we got the idea for immersion, for baptism in Christianity. The idea was in that day that if one went into the waters of the mikvah, it was as though he were experiencing a death, burial, and resurrection. If you go down into the water, my friends, and stay much more than two or three minutes, you're going to die. That's it. So it is a death-like experience. But when you come forth out of the water, you resurrect to a newness of life. And some of the sages of Israel even suggested that this was a, like being entering the waters of the womb of one's mother and being reborn, born again. So Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3 was not uniquely divine from heaven. It was in the context of his own Jewish community. And he's even telling Nicodemus, what do you mean? You're a Jewish leader in Israel and you don't understand this? When Jesus said, you must be born from above, you must be born again. Oh my, well, there goes baptism. <laughs> Found out that that's not exclusively Christian now. Well, I'll tell you one thing we definitely can do. Prayer is uniquely Christian. Because Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray. Because nobody in that community knew how to pray. They didn't know anything about prayer. So they had to ask Jesus. And since Jesus was God, he knew how to pray. And he told them how to pray. We heard this wonderful discourse this morning, how that every phrase 
in the disciples' prayer that Jesus gave to them and subsequently to us is anchored from a statement within the prayer life of the Jewish community and those prayers that Jesus prayed as a child, as an adolescent, and as an adult when he went into the synagogues on the Sabbath day as his custom was. Okay, well, what about faith? Now, wait a minute, now we're getting into something. Faith. We know that all those Jews, they were justified by works. Right? But we Christians now, we're justified by faith. So faith is a brand new Christian thing. I heard one minister one time say that faith was nowhere to be found in the Old Testament experience. To which my response was, well, isn't that funny? Because the one chapter in our New Testament scriptures that we call the roll call of faith doesn't mention one Christian name. Hmm. So faith is a Hebrew understanding. It's a Hebrew insight. Let me dispel this confusion. No one in all of human history has ever been saved by works. Let's get that clear. Everyone who has ever been saved and brought into the family of God, adopted into the family of God, got there exactly the same way that Abraham got saved 4,000 years ago by faith. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So the Jews aren't saved by works. They're saved by faith too. And all the Jews that got saved in the Old Testament didn't get saved by works. They got saved by faith. They were included in the family of God by faith. But you see, we come to a better understanding of that when we begin to know that the word for faith in Hebrew is emunah. And it means faithfulness. So it is a faith that is a decision of the human will that is then acted upon. The works, the faith, the, the belief produces action. So James was right after all when he said, faith without works is dead being alone. Hallelujah. Do you know that that word in Hebrew, emunah, comes from the root emet, or emet, which means truth? Faith and faithfulness is an outworking of truth. Now we understand why we, we are said in Scripture that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God because faith comes out of truth, which is the Word of God. Okay, well, I know one thing's for sure. Grace is nowhere to be found in the Old Testament. <clears throat> by grace are you saved through faith. Wrong. Well, right, by grace you're saved through faith, but wrong when you say it's not in the Old Testament. I've heard that said over and over again. You know, there was no grace in the Old Testament. My response is, would somebody please tell me how in the world Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord if there wasn't any back there? Christian fruit, Jewish root. Are you beginning to get the picture? I'm convinced that everything we want to find 
in the pages of the New Testament, we can find a root for it in the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures. The fruit has a root. I'm also convinced of the fact that if we really understood the root, we'd better understand the fruit. One of the problems with the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6 is that we really don't understand what that all is. But if you go back to the Jewish root of those fruit, you begin to get a bigger picture of what the fruit ought to look like. But unfortunately, our tree has been transplanted into foreign soil and has begun to imbibe and bring into it some, uh, some chemicals and things that have produced a fruit that is somewhat defective in many ways. I would suggest that that would be a task for the scholarship within the Hebraic Roots community that is emerging around the world to reevaluate each of the fruit of the Spirit and see what its true Jewish root is so we Christians could begin to bear healthy fruit that would be a blessing in our lives and the lives of others. Well, anyway, the fruit and the root, God's family tree. The olive tree metaphor. How many of you are glad that God grafted you into his family tree? How many of you knew God had a family tree? Well, God has a family tree. You've been grafted into it. God has a nation. You who are Gentiles have become citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers and foreigners, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says in Ephesians 2. You've been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. As Paul said, if you belong to the Messiah, then you are Abraham's children and your heirs according to the promises. That means that everything God promised to Abraham, he promised to you. Not because you were genetically connected to Abraham or because you have to go somewhere and do everything within your power to find that you have some part of Abraham's gene pool present in your body chemistry. The only thing you need is to belong to the Messiah. The case is closed. What more does one need for one's identity than being in the Messiah? Because if you are in the Messiah, you are a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. In Christ Jesus, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, bond nor free, male nor female. Isn't it interesting that Paul makes that statement? Because by the time of Paul, there was a benediction that was pronounced by a Jewish male when he rose in the morning to say, Thank God, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Paul said, When you come to Jesus, you can't even say that one anymore. Because the male, the female, the Jew, the Gentile, the slave, the slaveholder, they're all equal in the sight of God. That's another subject, and I don't want to go into that now take another <clears throat> hour or so anyway you've become a part of the nation of Israel do you know that every requirement for a person to become a Jew has been fulfilled in your life if you're a believer in Jesus before the time of Jesus and during the time of Jesus 
there were four things that were required of one to become a Jew. There's never been a time in history, by the way, when a Gentile could not become a Jew. Do you understand that? The reason for that is that the first Jew was a Gentile before he became a Jew. That's Abraham, the first Hebrew. So there's always been the openness for Gentiles to become Jews. How did they get to be a Jew? Number one, they had to be circumcised in the flesh. Number two, they had to offer a sacrifice in the temple. Number three, they had to be taught the Torah by a qualified teacher. And number four, they had to be immersed in the water of the mikvah. By the time of Jesus, it had come to be understood that when a Gentile wanted to convert to the faith of Abraham, even if he was circumcised, even if he'd been taught the Torah, even if he'd offered a sacrifice in the temple, he still wasn't a Jew until he went into the water of the mikvah and the moment that his head broke the plane of the water in the mikvah, at that precise instant, a forensic change took place in his life so that he no longer was a Gentile, but now he was fully a Jew. Now I want to suggest to you that you who are believers in Jesus have experienced each of those things. How many of you have been circumcised? All you ladies get to raise your hands now. Where did you get circumcised? In your heart. Now you see that's what's important anyway because when God spoke about circumcision all the way back to Moses, he said what I really want is a circumcised heart. And when he spoke to Jeremiah, he said what I really want is a circumcised heart. And so that's what happened. Our hearts have been circumcised because of our faith in Jesus. How many of you have made a sacrifice? Hmm, that's kind of a little bit hard. Got to think about that one just a minute. Somebody asked me one time, said, Dr. Gar, do you still believe in sacrificing? And I said, I absolutely do. Not only do I believe in sacrificing today, but I even believe in human sacrifice. (laughs) Tell me like, are you crazy? What planet did you come from? Well, I went on to say, I believe that I should be offering up the sacrifices of praise. I believe that my prayers are the incense that the angels offer on the golden altar of incense in heaven. And I believe that I'm supposed to present my body a living sacrifice every day. That's human sacrifice, by the way. (laughs) So do we believe in sacrifice? Yes. Now here's the difference in sacrifice in the old economy and the new economy. In the old economy, men who were priests took men's sacrifice for sin and offered them to God. In the new economy, we who are priests, how many priests are in the audience today? All of us, we're the priesthood of all believers. What do we do? We offer God's sacrifice for sin to men. And what is that sacrifice? The person of the Lord Jesus. We are his ambassadors saying, Be ye reconciled unto God through the one sacrifice that he has made, even the blood of his only begotten Son. Hallelujah. So we're still sacrificing. What are we sacrificing? We're sacrificing the gospel, the good news. We're proclaiming the good news that God's sacrifice has been made. All we have to do is receive it and our sins are covered. And not only covered, but blotted out, wiped away. How many of you have been taught the Word of God? 
Well, I've been taught the great word of God by the greatest Jewish rabbi that ever lived, and his name is Yeshua. How many of you have been taught the word of God, the Torah, by a Jewish rabbi? Hmm. You didn't know that, did you? You didn't know you'd been in rabbinic school and been taught by a rabbi, did you? How did he do it? He came inside of you and began to teach you from the inside out. And that's what's important about our understanding is that we have a teacher on the inside. By the, his, his name is the Holy Spirit. He's the, the paraclete, the teacher, the comforter who leads us into the Word of God and causes us to understand. Hallelujah. How many of you have been immersed in water? How many of you have experienced the waters of baptism? I want to suggest to you that you are qualified to be a part of the Israel of God today. You are fellow citizens with the saints and of the same body. You may be naturalized citizens. They may be native-born citizens, but you're a naturalized citizen. And how many of you know if you get to be a naturalized citizen in the United States, you're still a citizen, right? Hallelujah. Well, all these things come to us from the Jewish people. All of this understanding, all of this insight. I couldn't possibly begin to cover all the information that would lead us to understand the richness of our heritage. But I want to tell you something. The Holy Spirit is moving around the world in the lives of people, transdenominationally, transculturally, in every aspect of human life on this planet, God is moving in the lives of people to bring them back to the roots of their faith. People are hungry for a real sense of biblical identity. They're tired of being identified by everyone else's definition of who they ought to be. They want to go back and find out what God says about what they ought to be. We're beginning to reclaim our patrimony, that which we should have had all along, our inheritance from the fathers, from our spiritual ancestors. We're beginning to look all the way back to the rock from which we were hewn, all the way back to Father Abraham, as Isaiah said. And boy, are we discovering some really, really good stuff we are uncovering a treasure trove of insight and understanding. And you know what it's doing for us? It's making us better Christians every day. All you thought I was going to say is making us Jews, didn't you? No, it's making us better Christians. Because it's making us more like the Christian, the, the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. We're becoming like him. I don't know about you, I preached a message some years back when everybody was wearing the WWJD bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? And I got up and I said, well, if you want to know what Jesus would do, just open up the book and see what he did. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And if he were here today, he'd still be doing the same things he was doing then. No, you wouldn't be <clears throat> hiding Easter eggs. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Look over there. Everybody look over there. Carl, do that again. Do, can you believe that? The, the man is waving the French national flag. 
That's his handkerchief, by the way, for those on the tape. Now we can all stand together and sing the French National Anthem. I surrender all. Oh. Hallelujah. Well, we're going back to our heritage, reclaiming our patrimony. We're going back to the foundations of our faith. And we're finding out that there is a treasure chest that is enriching our lives and bringing us face to face with the living God. No more knowing about God. We want to know God. And that's the essence of Jewish life. <laughs>